0: Well, perhaps you still have your Bibles open to Titus chapter 2. The passage before us tonight is from chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 2. Before we look at it together, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we are going to read, the grace of God has appeared. I thank you that you haven't left us without grace That you haven't left us, as we saw in Ruth chapter 4, without a Redeemer today. So God, as we think about grace and how we should live, God, help us to bring those things together rightly in our minds. And I ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Tonight we're going to spend most of our time trying to piece together a definition of the word grace. But before we begin to do that, I want you to ask yourself, what is my first thought when I hear the word grace? In other words, if we were to play word association tonight, what would come out of your mouth most immediately if someone held up a flashcard with the word grace written on it? If you're like me, what probably comes to mind most immediately in connection with that word grace is the undeserved forgiveness that God offers to us in Jesus. The fact that He has not dealt with us according to our sins, Psalm 103, or rewarded us according to our iniquities. The reality that because Jesus died the death that we deserve, we can be forgiven freely at no cost to ourselves, by no merit of our own, with no need to pay God back and with no strings attached. Forgiveness. And I think if that's your first thought connected with the word grace, then you're on the right track. The very first thing that God's grace ought to bring to mind, I believe, is the cross of Christ and the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. But tonight, the Apostle Paul is going to remind us as he writes to his apprentice Titus that the forgiveness of sins is not the only thing we should think of when we see the word grace written on the pages of the Bible or when we hear it pronounced in a sermon or in a Sunday school lesson. It is true that grace does have everything to do with forgiveness and that forgiveness is the first thought that ought to come to our mind when we hear the word grace. And yet, we're going to see tonight that the word grace and the word forgiveness are not exactly synonyms. They're not one and the same thing. Rather, what we're going to see in the book of Titus this evening is that grace is actually bigger than forgiveness. Forgiveness. Grace is the larger, more overarching cause of forgiveness. So the two things are inextricably linked, grace and forgiveness. But grace is also the overarching cause of many other things that happen in our lives besides forgiveness. There's more to grace than just forgiveness. And Paul discusses that fact beginning here in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. He writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now, did you hear it? The grace of God has appeared, verse 11, not only forgiving our sins, wonderful and true and primary though that is, But the grace of God has also appeared instructing us, verse 12, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. Grace has appeared not only to forgive us for something, but to teach us something. Grace has appeared not only to forgive us, but to instruct us as to how we ought to live, verse 12. And therefore, we should say off the top that if our understanding of grace is limited to forgiveness, if we think of grace merely as a synonym for forgiveness, we've missed some things. And we will probably be stunted in our Christian growth. If we think of grace and forgiveness as exactly the same things, and think that grace is really just limited to forgiveness, we will either, on the one hand, ignore the fact that real saving grace actually changes human behavior, or, if our behavior does change, we will misinterpret and likely take undue credit for the good things that grace is actually doing in our lives. Therefore, as we read Titus two eleven through three two, we should notice that Paul's understanding of grace is broader and more far reaching than that of many modern Christians. He wanted Christians to know that God's grace has not only, not only appeared in their lives to forgive their sins, but also over time to eliminate their sins. Not only to forgive sins, but grace appears in our lives to eliminate our sins over time. So grace is about forgiveness and change. It's about the absolution of our sins and the alteration of our lifestyles. Grace is about justification and sanctification, to put it another way. Or to put it even more simply, grace not only forgives, grace works. Grace changes. And Paul is going to show us tonight some very practical ways that we should see grace working and changing in our lives. He's going to list a number of clear changes that we ought to see by God's grace happening in our character and in our behavior. But before we begin listing those practical day to day changes that grace works out in our lives, before we answer the question of what grace works in our lives, we need to consider how grace works in our lives. In other words, we need to ask of these verses, in what way does grace actually work in my heart? How does God's grace get inside of me and make the practical changes that Paul is going to suggest? beginning in verse 12. Or more simply, our first big question out of only two big questions tonight is this. How does grace work? How does grace work? In a few minutes we'll ask, what does grace work in our lives? But for now, how does grace work? And it seems to me that Paul gives a four-part answer all right there in the beginning of the passage in verses 11 and 12. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time here In these verses, how does grace work? Well, number one, Paul says that grace saves. Grace saves. Isn't that what he says in verse 11? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. So, the grace that Paul is thinking about in verses 11 and following is the grace that saves us from our sins, that forgives our sins. And I point that out, first of all, because there is grace that does not save. There is what Christians have often called common grace, namely the grace whereby God indiscriminately blesses mankind in general with things like oxygen and food and water and beating hearts and the strength to go to work and earn a living and so on. All of the things that we enjoy in life, aside from our salvation, are grace too. That is, none of those things are deserved by us. And yet God gives them to mankind indiscriminately anyway, as free gifts of what is called His common grace. But the grace that Paul is referring to in this passage specifically is the grace that saves. It's a grace of a different kind. It's a grace that saves and transforms character. Here he says, I'm speaking to you about the grace of God that brings salvation. So we'll call it saving grace. That's what typically it's called. And if you just read through verses 11 and 12, it's obvious that this one grace, saving grace, this grace that comes only to those who are united to Jesus Christ by faith, this one grace does two different things. In other words, when we read verses 11 and 12, there's not one kind of grace that saves you, forgives your sins, and then a subsequent kind of grace that helps you to live better. No, in verses 11 and 12, there's just one grace. And it's grace that saves, and it's grace that transforms. The grace that saves us, that forgives us our sin in verse 11, is the very same grace that instructs us to deny ungodliness in verse 12. Let me say that again. The very same grace that forgives our sins in verse 11, that saves us in verse 11, is the same grace that instructs us to deny ungodliness in verse 12. Now why is that important to point out? Well, because if forgiving grace and transforming grace are one and the same thing, then what Paul is implying in these verses is that you can't have one without the other. You cannot be forgiven of your sins without also, over time, growing out of them. Maybe not at this rate you would like. Maybe not at the rate that someone else grows out of them. But you will never grow out of your sins if you've not been forgiven of your sins. And by the same token, if you don't grow out of your sins, you can't be sure that you have been forgiven of them. Forgiving grace and transforming grace, the grace that saves and the grace that works in our lives, are one and the same. There's only one grace in this passage. And what that fact does is it undercuts the idea that a person can receive Jesus as Savior without also taking him as Lord. That's not possible. There's no such thing as merely having fire insurance, being forgiven and bound for heaven and yet not ever living like a Christian at all here on the earth. Because the same grace that allows you to receive Jesus as Savior, verse 11, also works in you to take him as Lord, verses 12 and following. The same grace that forgives your sins also works to eradicate them. So you cannot be forgiven without, over time, becoming more like Jesus. God no more grants forgiveness without also granting transformation than a father would give his son a car without giving him the keys or a baseball glove without a baseball to catch and throw or tennis shoes without strings. We know how that works. There's some, there's some items, there's some gifts that always go together, right? It's pointless to have one without the other. Some gifts, if you are given the gift without also getting the companion gift, it's like no gift at all. And that's the way it is with forgiveness and Christian growth, with justification and sanctification. God will never give one without giving the other. One appears a lot more readily than the other. You don't grow as quickly as you're forgiven. You're forgiven all at once. You grow over a period of 10 or 20 or 70 or 80 years. But both of the gifts always come together. The grace that forgives our sins... Verse 11 is the same grace that changes our character in verse 12. And here's one other sort of flip side application of that fact. While some of us may be tempted to think we can have forgiveness without ever changing, others of us may leave tonight and try to change without ever having been forgiven. In other words, it would be possible for someone, adult, child, teenager, to hear all that Paul is going to call us to be and do in these verses, and then to go out of this room hoping and praying and trying with all your might to do what the Bible says. And there's an element of that that's really good. But if you've never come to Jesus to receive the forgiveness of your sins, then you have not received the companion gift of change in your life. Forgiveness and change come together. So you cannot change, you cannot move one inch toward becoming more like Jesus if you will not at the same time come to Him and bow your knee and admit that you need to be forgiven of your sins. And so if you're hoping to change tonight without being forgiven, you should drop that hope until you're willing to seek forgiveness and change together until you're willing to seek forgiveness for the very fact that you need so badly to change. So that's the first thing. The grace that changes is the same grace that saves. Now secondly, notice grace appeared. How does grace work in our life? Well, it saves us, but also he says in verse 11, grace at some time appeared. That's the beginning of verse 11 still. This transforming, forgiving life changing grace of god has appeared now that's an important word the idea of forgiving transforming grace had to appear to us and the reason it had to appear to us is because it's not something that we inherently know or understand or could think up in our human nature grace Needed to appear, God needed to put it on the screen for us to see, God needed to make it rise in our lives like the morning sun on what would have otherwise been a blank horizon. Grace appeared because it 's not something that man would have ever perceived or even imagined on his own, and you 'll find if you study them the idea that the idea of saving grace is not inherent, in fact, is completely absent from the philosophical and religious systems that man has made. You can study them on any place on the planet, and you'll find that all the world religions are bent towards earning heaven or nirvana or whatever they conceive of as a reward for a life well lived. All the man-made religions and philosophies in the world are built around human merit, And the reason for that is because the idea of grace, free, undeserved favor that we have not earned and that we cannot pay God back for, is not inherent in man's thinking. So if men and women were ever to renounce their own self-reliance and turn back from trying to save themselves... If men and women were ever going to run to God and ask Him to give them far beyond what they could ever deserve, then the concept of grace would have to appear. We weren't going to think it up on our own and ask God for it. It had to appear to us. God would have to reveal it to us. And that's what Paul is saying. In His Word, God's done that, hasn't He? He is. Made grace to appear. He's defined it. He's illustrated it. He's advertised it to us all throughout the Old and the New Testaments. Throughout the Bible, God has caused the concept of grace to appear on the pages of Scripture, saying things like, Come, buy buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Isaiah 55 1. The grace of God has appeared. And here's what's really significant about that. Here's what I want you really to remember. When the grace of God appeared, it did not come merely as a set of principles or ideas or definitions or doctrines. Yes, it is all of those things. But the word appeared is a more tangible word, isn't it? In other words, we don't normally use the word appeared to refer to ideas and concepts. Do we? We use the word appeared to refer to concrete objects. Something appeared. I saw it. Ideas can be explained and written about and thought about and taught to people. But the kinds of things that we refer to as appearing are things like cars and the sun or animals or iPhones or people or whatever it may be your keys are lost, you hope that they will appear. We use the word appear to refer to, to things, to objects. And therefore, when Paul says that the grace of God has appeared in verse 11, I think what he means is that the saving, transforming grace of God is something more than just a concept. Or an idea that can be explained. Rather, the saving grace of God, though it is a concept, though it is an idea, is more than that. It is actually appeared in tangible form. How so? Well, in a person. Verses 13 and 14. Our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us. He's going to appear again, Paul is saying in verses 13 and 14. But in verse 11, he's told us that he has already appeared and brought grace with him. So how did the grace of God appear? Not in the form of a doctrine first, but in the form of a person who made the doctrine possible. For had Jesus not come and laid down his life for us, there would be no saving grace, no forgiveness, No heaven, no life change, no hope. But grace appeared. Not in a philosophy classroom, not in a theological textbook, but through the sinless life and atoning death and resurrection of a person. Our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Never forget that. If you are to get the help that God offers to you, If you are to really grow in the Lord, it will not do simply to understand grace, to understand this sermon, to grasp all the facts that Paul is laying out for us tonight. That won't by itself change your life. It won't do you any good just to know the doctrine. You must entrust yourself to the person behind the doctrine, to Christ Jesus. So the grace of God has appeared in the person of Jesus. That's the second point. Grace saves. Grace has appeared. And now before we even leave verse 11, there's a third thing to notice. Grace is broad. Grace is broad. The grace of God, he says, has appeared bringing salvation to all men. That's broad. And it sounds straightforward enough, doesn't it? But we should note at least briefly that Titus 2.11 does provide us with some bit of a theological quandary. On the surface, the verse seems simple enough. But if you look closely, you'll see that Paul says something that needs more thought and consideration than we have time for tonight. Namely, Paul does not say that the grace of God has appeared bringing the gospel to all men. He doesn't say the grace of God has appeared bringing the hope of salvation or the opportunity for salvation or the possibility of salvation to all men. He actually says the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation itself to all men. Why is that difficult? Because the rest of the Bible makes clear, and most of you I'm sure are aware, that not all men in the end are going to be saved. Not all men are going to go to heaven. Not all men are going to be forgiven of their sins. Not all men are going to be transformed in the way that Paul is describing in these verses. And therefore, whether one leans in questions of how salvation actually works in the direction of man's free will or whether one leans in the direction of God's predestination, this is a hard verse to figure out because no one who reads the Bible with a clear head, believes that every person on the earth, without exception, is actually even going to hear about salvation, much less experience it. So what does Paul mean when he says that salvation comes to all men? Well, it doesn't mean that all men are going to be saved. So what does he mean? Well, since all men do not actually hear about salvation and receive salvation, and many who do hear about it don't receive it, what Paul says here has to be some sort of a theological shorthand. He has to be saying more than his words actually led on. Either, and it has to be one of two things, either the phrase bringing salvation to all men is Paul's shorthand for the grace of God has appeared, bringing the opportunity of salvation to all men who ever lived, I.e., he has to be saying on one hand, perhaps, that because of Jesus' death, salvation is possible for all men everywhere without exception. That's one view. Or, on the other hand, the other option would be that the phrase bringing salvation to all men is shorthand for Paul, meaning bringing actual salvation to all types of men, all classes of men. In other words, because Jesus died, perhaps Paul is saying that people will infallibly be saved from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And in fact, from all the various classes of men that he's just finished talking about in verses 1 through 10. Men and women, old and young, slave and free. It has to be one or the other. Either he's saying that the possibility of salvation is available to all men, or he's saying that actual salvation comes to all sorts of men. And sincere Christians have come down on both sides of the discussion. I happen to believe that all men here is Paul's way of referring to the various groups of people he's just finished addressing in verses 1 through 10. I think, in other words, that what he's saying here is that because Jesus died, God has saved all sorts of people, men and women, Young and old, slave and free, verses 1-10. through And therefore, from verse 12, and in the words of the commentator William Hendrickson, no one can derive, based on the particular group or caste to which he belongs, a reason for not living a Christian life. I think that's what Paul is getting at here. He's saying, look, all of you different kinds of people had the saving grace of God appear to you. And therefore, you can't say, well, I'm too old to really grow in Christ, or I'm too young, or I'm too oppressed, or whatever it may be. All men who have received God's saving grace, verse 11, must also walk in His transforming grace, verse 12. That's what I think it means. And we don't have have time to consider why or time to consider why not. I have, however, uh, spent a lot of time today trying to answer that question at length in the end notes in the sermon manuscript. So if you're thinking, I want to know why he thinks that or why he doesn't think the other, I have almost two pages in there just dedicated to this. And they'll be out on the front table or on the internet next Monday. But for now, I simply point that out to say there's more thinking to be done in Titus 2.11. But here's what's most vital and most germane to Paul's train of thought tonight. Namely, that whichever side of that question you come down on, the emphasis of Titus 2.11 is the broadness of God's mercy. His salvation and the transforming effects that come with it are poured out on people of all stripes, people far and wide. God is generous with the grace that saves and transforms, that justifies and sanctifies. We should never begin to think that Jesus died and that there's only a few little ones of us who are real Christians. God has people everywhere that He has saved and that He will save. He's liberal in allowing His grace in the person of His Son to appear to people all over this globe. And therefore, back into Paul's train of thought, all those different kinds of people should be changing. No one has an excuse for not growing and changing because they're too old or too young or too oppressed or whatever. Well, I'm just a man. That's just the way I am. No. All these different people, they've all received God's saving grace, and if they've received His saving grace, then they have received His transforming grace as well. Grace instructs all men to deny ungodliness and change. And that leads to the fourth answer to the question of how God's grace works. It saves, it's broad, it has appeared in the person of God's Son. And fourthly, Paul says that grace instructs, Now in verse 12, the grace of God has appeared, verse 11, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. Instructing us. That word instructing is important. Paul could have said that the grace of God has appeared enabling us to deny ungodliness, couldn't he? That would be true, wouldn't it? The grace of God has appeared and enables us to deny ungodliness. In fact, we cannot deny ungodliness or live sensibly, godly, and righteously in our own strength, can we? It's only by God's grace, which has caused us to die to sin and live to Christ, Romans 6, which has caused us to be born again to a new life, which has changed us from the inside out, grace, which comes to us constantly in the scriptures. It's only by God's grace, I say, that any of us will ever change. So it's true that grace working inside of us enables us to deny ungodliness and to live sensibly godly and righteously. But that is not what Paul says here. That's true, but that's not here. Here he doesn't say the grace of God has appeared enabling us to deny ungodliness. True though that may be. Here he says the grace of God has appeared instructing us to deny ungodliness. And that's different, isn't it? It's different for your teacher to instruct you and help you to get an A by instructing you than it is for her to enable you, for her to take the test for you. And the Holy Spirit works and grace works in Both ways. God comes into us and works through us like the teacher taking the test for us. But God, by His grace, also instructs us so that we change. Grace, He says, instructs us to change and grow and transform. And I think the word choice of instruct is important. God not only empowers us from the inside out, but He teaches us from the outside in. And one of the ways grace teaches us is as we think about grace and the first thing that comes to our mind when we hear the word grace, right? The first thing that comes to our mind most of us when we hear grace is, Jesus died for me. I am forgiven. I am right with God. That's grace. And that teaches us something. When we look at the person of Jesus, when we look at the cross, when we look at this man through whom grace has come to us, we are taught to deny ungodliness. How so? Well, in a number of ways, but let me just mention one. How does looking at what Jesus did for us on the cross teach us to deny ungodliness? It almost would seem like it would do exactly the opposite, right? It might seem that if we're really thinking all the time about Jesus dying for us and our sins being forgiven, that we would sin all the more. Because after all, he's already done what needed to be done. My sins, past, present, and future are already forgiven. So why not just keep sinning? But that's not the way it actually works in a forgiven heart, isn't it? No. If we have truly been forgiven, if we've truly seen what it costs Jesus to provide forgiveness for us, If we have truly grasped and received the forgiving grace of God, we'll want to honor him all the more, right? Not as a method of repayment, but as a way to show that we love him and we're thankful beyond measure for what he's done. And so in that way, grace, the grace that was poured out to us on the cross, the grace that forgives our sins instructs us. It teaches us, it persuades us to live godly. Grace says to us, if Jesus did this for you, then should you not obey Him? Should you not love Him? Should you not live godly and live more like Christ? Grace teaches us. That's one reason among many why a person can't be forgiven without also having a deep, deep desire to change. If you don't desire to change, you must not appreciate the grace that God has given you at the cross. And if you don't appreciate the grace that God has given you at the cross, then you surely have not been forgiven. But if you are forgiven, and if you have received the grace of forgiveness, then that grace says to you, if he did this, then should you not love him? Should you not be grateful to him? Should you not obey him? Should you not deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age? So grace saves. Grace has appeared in the person of Jesus. God's grace is broad. And God's grace instructs us, teaches us, persuades us to deny ungodliness. Now with a little bit of time that we have left, We need to ask our second big question. We've just finished asking, how does grace work in our lives? Now we need to ask, what does grace work in our lives? What practically will be the difference in our lives if we've truly known God's grace? Or more simply, how can you tell if a person is really a Christian? What kinds of changes should you expect to see? What does saving grace actually work in our lives? And Paul answers at some length, beginning in verse 12 and going down through chapter 3, verse 2. And I think we can divide what he says into three sections and think about them each briefly. First, Paul, when we're thinking about what grace works in our lives, he just gives a general introduction. A general introduction. Just some overarching answers in verses really just in verse 12. Paul begins there by telling us in general terms what kinds of things grace works. And one of the things that grace works on us and in us is the desire to stop doing certain things. Verse 12a. Grace works so that we stop, so that we cease and desist with the ungodliness and the worldly desires in our lives, so that old habits die out so that unhealthy relationships either change or are broken off in appropriate ways, so that new temptations are fended off. Grace works so that we stop doing some things, and I wish we had time to give some examples. But in the absence of that, let me simply ask you to be honest with yourself. Are there habits in your life that you'd be embarrassed to talk about in front of this group? Cravings that you have that you know God wants you to lay down? And will you stop? That's the first thing that grace instructs us to do just broadly. To deny certain things. To stop doing certain things. Ungodly, worldly things. But then still speaking in general terms from verse 12, grace instructs us also to start doing certain things. We deny certain things and then we live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. We stop and we start And again, I simply ask you to do a little self-application. Are there good habits or disciplines that you know God has been asking you to form or enhance or improve? And are there good works or ministries that you know God is asking you to be involved in? Think about it. What has God been asking you to start? Whatever it is if you've truly experienced the grace that Jesus pours out in the gospel, I would think you would want to start. You'll want to stop and you'll want to start. You'll want to demonstrate your love and your thankfulness in just the way that Paul describes in verse 12. And to help you to do that, let me point you secondly to verses 13 and 14 where Paul gives some gospel motivation. A general introduction to what grace does in our lives, and then he gives us a gospel motivation. Why, verses 13 and 14, should you deny ungodliness and worldly desires? Why should you live sensibly and righteous and godly in the present age? Well, first, because you believe, I hope, that the present age is not all there is. You live sensibly in the present age, verse 12, because you're looking for the coming age, verse 13, because you're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Well, let me ask you an easy question. Do you believe Jesus is coming again? Surely you do. But that's not the question here. The question is, do you live like it? Do you live like it? Indeed, wasn't that the point of so many of the parables that Jesus told? Wasn't Jesus always telling his disciples and the Pharisees stories about landowners and masters and vineyard lords who went away on long journeys and then who came back to find some of their servants being faithful and some of them fooling around? And wasn't he actually talking not about vineyard owners and servants, but about himself and his coming and you and me? Of course he was. So let me just ask you, if Jesus were to come back tonight, would He find that you've been faithful with the gifts and the time and the money and the opportunities that you've been given? Or would He find that you've been fooling around? The second coming of Jesus is great motivation to change, to grow, to be what we ought to be. And so, as we've already been saying, is His first coming. His second coming motivates us, verse 13, but so does His first coming, verse 14. Verse 14. We should be motivated by the fact that Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's why He came. Not just to forgive your sins, but also to purify you and to make you zealous for good deeds. And can we honestly look at the pock marks on His forehead and the nail prints in His hands and feet and the hole in His side and the mangled scars on His back and be anything but pure and zealous? If Jesus died for our sins, then can we do anything but live for Him? To do anything other than that would be the height of ungratefulness, wouldn't it? I've loved you. I've given my life for you. I've suffered and died in agony and shame for you. To do anything but to be zealous and pure would be... So ungrateful. To do anything else would be to behave like one of those eight-year-olds at the birthday party who tears open, you know, his friend's gift to him. And he looks at it kind of with a scowl and immediately he tosses it aside without so much as even a thank you because he has so many other presents that he wants to open. You've been to those parties, haven't you, right? You know, the kid, you want to just pull the rubber band from his hat and just... Or I do... You probably know, I'll probably not get invited to any birthday parties anytime soon, but that's, that's a common scene. I think you all know what I'm talking about. And yet, And yet, without all the drama, isn't that how we often respond to God's gift to us? He gave His Son for us, and yet somehow we are often so distracted by other things as to be monstrously ungrateful. That's why all of us sometimes need to kind of stern reminders that Paul urges Titus to give in verse 15. Make sure they listen. Don't let them forget this. And what was Titus to advise the people on Crete to do in light of the amazing grace of God? That's our third point, the last thing. What does grace work in our lives? Well, he gives some general introduction. Then he gives some gospel motivation and then finally here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 he gives some specific application. What does the grace of God work in our lives? Well in the first two verses of chapters of chapter 3 Titus is given a list of qualities that ought to characterize people who have received grace at Christ's first coming and who are looking forward to his second coming. And let me just summarize what he says. First, in verse 1, he says Christians are to be submissive people. Submissive people. Whomever it is that God has placed as an authority or as a leader in your life, you should follow them. And whoever he's placed as an authority and leader in my life, I should follow them. Are you doing that? And if not, how not? And if not, what are you going to do about it starting now, Christians are submissive people. Christians are to be, secondly, charitable people at the end of verse 1. Charitable people engaged in all sorts of good deeds. You can think of thousands of things that Christians ought to be involved in, I'm sure. Maybe for you at City Gospel Mission. Or pregnancy care, or helping an elderly neighbor, or blessing a church member that's in need, or offering someone a ride to church, or supporting persecuted Christians, or giving to missions, or inviting someone to Easter, or a thousand other things. But what is it for you? I've already asked you, and I ask you again, what is God asking you to start doing? And will you dive in head first for Jesus' sake? Christians are submissive people. They are charitable people. And lastly, he says, Christians are agreeable people. Agreeable people. Verse 2. We're not to be gossips. We're not to be fighters by nature. Not abrupt. Not abrasive. Not angry. Indeed, he says, we ought to show consideration for all men. Young and old. Male and female. Slave and free. Democrat and Republican. Republican. Christian and non-Christian. Talented at work and inept at work. Consideration for all men. Do you do that? Is there a certain someone or class of certain someones in your life upon whom you look down? Think about your life. Think about verses 1 and 2. Ask yourself, does my life demonstrate that the grace of God has appeared to me.